First Corinthians chapter six. First Corinthians chapter six, beginning in verse one, it says, "When one of you has a grievance against another, does does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints?" Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It's the word of God this morning. As I, as I turn to the word of God this morning, I want to ponder for a second in, in our culture we love revenge stories. They are all over the canon of Western literature. If you start early English literature, uh, think about Shakespeare. Shakespeare loves a good revenge story. Many of his plays are full of revenge, and we like it. The Count of Monte Cristo, one of the most famous, one of the, one of the best that we think of, a, a man who was wronged and then is able to seek revenge for all of his things. And then you think of more modern movies. And if, if you don't know what I'm talking about with the more uh, book kind of, of revenge stories, I've got two words for you. True Grit. True Grit, famous John Wayne movie, but it was recently remade. Uh, and both of them are now classics of the revenge Genre, And I think part of the reason we like it so much is that we love the idea of someone weak triumphing over someone who has victimized them. So think for a second, if you haven't seen the movie, think about True Grit for just a minute. Little Maddie Ross, she, she is a, a young woman in the wild, wild west, and her father is murdered by a hired hand, and so she wants revenge, and she goes and she hires John Wayne's character in the original movie, a guy named Rooster Cogburn. His name seems tough enough to get revenge. And he is supposed to hunt down this hired hand who murdered her father. And he's described, he is, he's a drunk, he's out of shape, he's old, but he is tough. 
And the expectation is that this U.S. Marshal will track down the murderer like a bloodhound and he'll either kill him in the streets when he finds him or he'll drag him back to be hung by an executioner. But the high point of the movie is actually when little Maddie herself is confronted with her father's killer and Maddie gets her own revenge and shoots him. There is a deep satisfaction in that moment. You almost cheer because this young, helpless girl has shown that she is actually tough and she gets the justice and the satisfaction that she craves. And I think the reason that we take so much satisfaction in there is the world is not like that. We live in a world where the weak and the powerless are often abused and victimized and they cry out for justice. And we long to see that justice served. But when we open the pages of Scripture and we go to the book of Exodus, I think it's sometimes tempting to read through what God prescribes as justice and to recoil from it because it may seem harsh. But the justice that God calls for is never harsh. In fact, what we see in Exodus is God protecting the weak and calling for justice for everyone with equality, for men and women, for those who are serving in indentured slavery, for, for the poor and for the rich. God's standard of justice applies to everyone. And that is exactly what we will see in our text today. Not only does God give his law to his redeemed people as he prepares them for worship. So remember that the giant context of the book of Exodus, it starts in slavery. It ends with the glory of God and all of the people worshiping him. Don't miss that in the middle of that book between slavery and worship come the Ten Commandments. God's people need to learn how to obey the Lord before they worship him. He now, in Exodus chapter 21, explains how the law applies and what to do when someone breaks it. And I believe the clear implication for us today is we are unfit for worship when we ignore injustice. We are unfit for worship when we ignore injustice. And my prayer for today is that each of us would seek to be right before God and each other. It's easy to look at laws like this and think they only apply in the public square, but the reality is they apply within the church as well. And God's passion for justice is that we would seek forgiveness and seek to live in obedience to all of his commands. And one of the problems that we face is because we are sinful people, often our sense of justice is off. Sometimes we want to apply mercy to people who are guilty that need to be held accountable, and we should not do that. And sometimes we want to apply judgment to people beyond what their crime deserves. And so God, in his wisdom and his kindness, helps us because our sense of justice is broken. God tells us what is right and what is wrong and how to pursue true justice. And so this morning, I want to do three things. First, we're going to spend some time in Exodus chapter 21, and I want to look at God's heart for justice in Israel. 
Next, I want to talk briefly about how that applies in our time. We do not live in Israel. We live in America. And so I want to talk about God's justice in an American context. And then finally, I want to talk about God's justice within the church. So to begin, let's, let's go to our text this morning. And I want to encourage you to open with me to Exodus chapter 21. You can find it in one of the blue Bibles on page 62 or one of the large print on page 73. And there is a lot of information in this text. And, and I think there's a real risk that you will get lost if you do not follow along, either on your phone or in a Bible. So let me encourage you to, to follow along with me as I read Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 12 and going all the way to verse 32. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, a male or a female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Now that was a long passage of scripture. Here's what it's applying. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. And in every instance where there might be a small variation. So when, for example, maybe the person didn't die. Well, then what happens Is there restitution to be made? In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. What if, rather than a person doing the killing, an animal does the killing? Is the owner of the animal responsible? The answer is yes. But the death penalty does not first apply to the owner unless he fails to take care of that dangerous animal. If he's guilty of criminal negligence, then yes, the owner pays. And the same law applies to everyone, male and female, slave and free, child, even the unborn. And so all of these verses 
God applies in very specific ways for his people. And I want to point out just two things. First, number one, it should be obvious from all of these details that God cares deeply about perfect justice. He is never too severe and he is never too lenient. God does say the death penalty is just for some crimes. And I expect within, within our congregation here, some people are uncomfortable with that. The Bible never uses an overly severe penalty because it's intended to be a deterrent. That's one of the modern arguments for using the death penalty. Well, it'll deter crime. It'll actually make less crime. God's intent is not first deterrent. That may happen as a result of the death penalty. But his first concern is justice. And this is actually established in Genesis where God gives flawed humans as they govern themselves the responsibility of exacting justice for murder. God is also deeply concerned about the purity of his people. Allowing injustice to go unpunished would ultimately bring judgment on the entire nation. And so he commanded them to enforce his laws with impartiality. Some of you may feel that these standards are unfair. You you may have heard the phrase, two wrongs don't make a right applied to the death penalty. But the Bible is clear. The God who gave us life sometimes requires death as a matter of justice. And he gives the right to execute judgment to flawed human governments. But it is important to note that even within the scriptures, it is recognized that this right of human government can be and was abused. So there are protections for the accused. Notice what we would call perhaps second-degree murder or perhaps involuntary manslaughter, those are not automatically punishable by death, and the accused could take refuge until his case was tried, so he was protected from a wrongful punishment. Additionally, in order for the death penalty to be given out, the law required at least two witnesses. And this is a chapter that you may want to write down and look at later. Numbers chapter 35 Numbers chapter 35, I'm not going to read it today, but it clearly says this. Murderers shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, plural, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. That is a high standard. There are rarely two witnesses to a murder. And in fact, I think sometimes our justice system is not careful enough as we try criminal cases. God's standard for the accused is high. Based on that standard of evidence, not many people would have been put to death. God is very concerned to protect the innocent. Second, let me add this. Like we saw last week, God is a champion for the weak. As you read through these different examples, they include people that a justice system very likely would have overlooked. He has a passion For protecting those who are vulnerable in society. Accidental killing and crimes of passion. Do not automatically require death. And the the perpetrator of the crime is in real danger. And so God offers protection for that person. Who is potentially guilty. And makes it possible for him to be protected. Before the case is determined. Until the trial. The offender was to be protected. 
And when the Bible says that God will appoint a place for a violent offender to flee, he will later name specific cities of refuge within Israel. So if you committed a violent crime, no one could harm you until you had your day in court. And if someone did harm you, then they would be guilty of murder. They would not be able to claim that they were exacting justice because that person was under protection and the case had not been tried yet. So God's passion for justice is seen both in providing compensation for victims and in protecting the accused from a perversion of justice. But then notice this. There are also cases where God prescribes the death penalty where we certainly would not. And these are some of the things that may be very troubling for people. Severe violence against a parent requires the death penalty. Now, in every case except this one, God says, if the person lives then the offender is not held guilty. He makes restitution for lost time, but is not held to the death penalty requirement. In this case, though, even if the parent lived, they were still held to the high standard for two reasons. Number one, this violence is not just giving your dad a black eye in a strong argument. This is the kind of violence that's the exact same violence talked all throughout this context where someone really was in risk of dying. And so if you were that violent with your parent, you had not only broken a command and potentially run the risk of murdering them, you had broken the command of God to honor your father and mother. And the two of those combined resulted in a severe penalty. This sort of violence was to be punished by death. God also adds slave traders and kidnappers were to be punished by death. So you might think the accused are a person that needs to be protected. You might think parents, especially elderly parents, need to be protected. People who were vulnerable to human trafficking needed to be protected. And then he adds this, cursing your parents, saying in effect, you are dead to me and neglecting them was punishable by death. Again, this is not in a moment of anger, swearing or saying something horrible. This is, this is a repudiation of your responsibility to care for them in their old age. The best illustration I can give of this is actually from Jesus' parable of, of, the, uh, of the, the, not the Good Samaritan, that's, that's what's in my head. The, the parable of the young man, the prodigal son who goes and leaves his father, who says, I want you to give me my inheritance, and you are dead to me. And rather than honoring his father, he goes and squanders his inheritance. Now in that story, Jesus says the father has mercy, but remember what the father says? My son who was dead lives. His son was dead because he was under a death penalty. That's how serious it is to neglect your responsibility to honor your father and mother and to care for them and to curse them in a way where you go to them and say, I'm going to use what you have. I'm going to collect your wealth now. I'm going to abandon you and not provide for you. God says that kind of disowning of your parents, that's punishable by death. He is protecting the vulnerability of the old age there. And then the passage describes what justice looks like when violence does not result in death. So a violent quarrel that does not result in death demands restitution for lost wages while the injured party is recovering. Indentured slaves were to be set free for an injury. We talked about slavery last week. The reality is slavery in Israel is very different than slavery anywhere else in the world. 
So it's temporary. They are really selling their time, not their lives. And so if, if a slave were injured, that injury would result in their freedom and all of the compensation and financial uh, payment that came when, a, when an indentured slave was set free. If you have questions about that, I'd encourage you to listen to the message from last week. Indentured slaves are set free for an injury. A slave who was killed was to be avenged with the death penalty, no different from anyone else. This is unlike anything else in the ancient world. Slaves were not protected like this anywhere else. But God says that his justice applies equally to everyone. Restitution for an injury did not apply since the slave was not working for his own ages and actually the owner was the one who lost out financially. Notice this, unborn children were protected. When God says a life for a life, it means that if the unborn child that was born as a result of a violent fight died, then the offender was guilty of murder. Let me add that the scripture makes it very clear that with the exception of murder, the offenses where someone was physically injured, where it says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, all of those offenses are actually payments that were monetary. Scripture, to my knowledge, and, I, I, and I, it's very hard to search for this kind of thing, but to my knowledge, no one in Scripture is ever maimed as a result of this kind of crime. Numbers describes payment being made to the injured person. And actually, our, our text today hints at that because a slave who is injured, you don't knock out the, the owner's tooth, you set him free. So there's a financial compensation for those injuries. You've heard the Bible does expect justice here, though. You've heard the saying, an eye for an eye makes us both blind. That saying does get at a very important truth. The the God certainly teaches the importance of forgiveness, but mercy must never be confused with allowing the guilty to go unpunished. While God is shown to be merciful in his justice, he never allows sin to go unpunished. That's why Jesus died in our place for our sins. That's the only way we can have forgiveness before God because someone else made the payment for us on our behalf. Injuries from an animal were not initially criminal, but a violent animal animal was to be put to death. And if it wasn't, the next time it was harmed, the owner was liable for murder because of criminal negligence. However, in this case, unlike instances of murder where a person does the killing, it was possible for the owner of the animal to redeem his life by paying the family of the deceased. And if the deceased was a slave, then the owner was to be paid for the loss of life. Now, I want to make a few things very clear. First, as I said last week, these are context-specific rules for applying God's law in Israel. God's law does not change, but his rules for applying them will be used differently by different people and in different places. So the state in Israel was governed by the priests who were served as judges in criminal cases. Even when Israel had a king, priests were brought in to help people discern what was just in a given circumstance. Church and state were not separate, if anything, until the king... The state did not exist at all, and God's people were ruled by God's law. But now listen, in our context, Jesus taught very clearly that his kingdom is not of this world, and the church operates very differently. So I want to take just a moment and talk about our relationship to secular governing authorities, and then talk about justice within the church. So first, 
Let's look at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And I want to say just a brief word about justice in America. And I can't cover everything, but I want to, I want to describe the reality that because church and state are now separate, and they are separate in the divine plan of God, the way that we understand Exodus as a church is a little different. Our context is not the same. So read with me Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7. And I want to say a word about justice in America, how the church relates to a civil authority. Paul writes to the church, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. God is clearly teaching that the proper role of a Christian in a non-Christian government is submission to the state. These verses show that the church should not attempt to exercise civil authority. When a crime has been committed, we can and we should involve the proper authorities. You might ask about unjust governments, and that's a good question. To be honest, that's an entirely different sermon, and someday I will preach it. But here, I'll just say a couple of things very briefly. Paul is writing under the Roman government. At this time, it is incredibly corrupt. It is not a just government. And Paul says the obligation of the Christian is still to submit. But let me add this. God always expects his children to do what is right. And so if the government asks you to sin, you disobey the government, and you accept whatever consequence is given, trusting that the Lord, in his timing, will make it right. At the same time, there are many instances when God does expect justice to be handled within the church. So the church does not exclusively hand all of this over to a secular government. As you heard in the scripture passage that Chris read before this message, there are times when we need to exercise judgment within the church. And I'd like to spend the remainder of my time looking at that. So now justice in the church. And I'd encourage you to turn with me to Matthew 18. And we'll begin by looking at verses 15 through 20. So now Matthew 18. And we'll look at verses 15 through 20. Jesus is teaching and he says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, as an unbeliever, in other words. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What Jesus is saying there is that the church has authority to exercise judgment in these cases. Now let me be clear. When a crime is committed that needs to be reported to the state, such as sexual abuse, you report it to the state. This is not a passage that describes how to handle a circumstance like that. I believe Romans 13 applies there and you go to the state. However, not every sin against your brother is criminal. And so, in these instances, we are to begin by trying to reconcile person to person. And notice the three-step process Jesus gives to us. Number one, go to your brother or to your sister in the church. If you have, have not reconciled and forgiven each other or restored fellowship, then you go again with someone else. Let me say this. If you skip the first step and you begin by talking to someone else... You are in sin. You are not doing what Jesus has told you to do. So if you have a problem with your brother or sister, step one, go to them. Step two, if they do not respond, take someone with you. You may learn perhaps you were in the wrong. Perhaps someone else will clarify your judgment. And so step two includes one or two other people. And again, you are seeking forgiveness and restoration of fellowship. If that fails and the one or two people that you took with you believe that this is still a wrong, then you are to go before the church and the church exercises judgment. And what Jesus is saying, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He is saying the church has heavenly authority to decide in these cases. And that might sound crazy to you. You might wonder, has this ever been put in practice anywhere? The answer is yes. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians and look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and we're going to look at verses 5 through 12. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is applying this exact standard in a case where the first two, the first two steps of the process has failed and so now it is before the entire church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul says this, beginning in verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now remember, the passage from Matthew 18 ends with, where two or three are gathered, there am I in their midst. So Paul is saying, as you stand in judgment of your brother, Jesus is with you. Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What they had done is they had been proud of how inclusive their fellowship was, and so they didn't confront this man. He says, instead, you should cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. So we are to love unbelievers who are living in sin. All unbelievers are in sin. That's not what this is talking about. What he says is someone within the church who is committing a sin and will not repent. 
we are to stand in judgment of them so that they can experience the healing and forgiveness of God. He says he's not talking about the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Still in verse 10, he says, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? There are so many things that we could say about this text I believe we would never do this in our context unless the word of God taught us to do it. And even with the clear teachings of God, most churches do not obey the clear teaching that we are to confront one another in love. And it's not just true of sexual sins. He mentions greed. Have you ever heard of someone being thrown out of a church because they're greedy? Paul says that it should happen because that greed will lead them to an eternity in hell. The discipline of the church is to bring people to repentance. Unrepentant sinners do not know the Lord. So notice two things about what Paul says. First, what the church says when they remove someone from fellowship is that they do not believe that that person knows the Lord. They are, in short, saying, you are not a believer as far as we can tell. And that says that they will one day face the judgment in hell that Christ warns about when he teaches his clear commandments. Read Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus mentions hell several times for people who choose to serve their sexual impulses or for people who serve their their money idolatry. Hell is the danger that we run into when we continue in sin. And in a real way, the judgment of the church is far more fearful than the civil judgment that requires death. Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body. Instead, fear the one who can send both body and soul into hell. The church, when they cast someone out from fellowship, is saying, we believe that you are under the condemnation of God. But when they hand down judgment on someone who will not repent of sin, they are acting on behalf of God, saying, we believe you are under God's judgment. And second, this is so critical to understanding why the church would do this. Notice the intent of the judgment. Paul says very clearly, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That sounds awful. But why are they doing that? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The purpose of church discipline is so that the sinner repents and receives forgiveness and there is restoration This forgiveness is possible because Jesus, our creator, died in our place and rose from the dead. That's why we as Christians believe in the forgiveness of sins. When we exercise mercy and forgiveness, we are not ignoring justice. Instead, we are celebrating God's forgiveness. And I can tell you, if you read the book of 2 Corinthians, this man does repent. The love of the church helped him realize the destructive nature of his sin. And he repented and was restored to the fellowship of the church. And so he was healed. So imagine for a second if they had ignored his sin. He would have been driven from Christ and gone to hell. But because they had the courage to confront him, he repented and receives the forgiveness and restoration that comes through repentance. The most loving thing we as a church can do when we see someone in sin is kindly and graciously confront them 
with humility, recognizing all of us are sinners. We don't stand in judgment, but God has given us his clear teachings of what is right and what is wrong. And so as we stand on the clear teachings of God, we warn people of the dangers of sin so that we can experience the blessing of forgiveness and life in Christ. If you've heard this message, you've heard Matthew 5, what Jesus teaches us to do about how to seek restoration within the context of the church. If you have realized that you have wronged someone in the church or you have been wronged, I want to ask you, would you take a pen out right now? If you don't already have one out and write that person's name down, don't lose this piece of paper. I want to ask you to do that because I want you to be very specific about seeking healing and restoration. And I want to call you to the high obedience of Christ that says you may need to go to someone today and say, I've sinned against you. You may need to go to someone today and say, I believe you've sinned against me and we need to talk. And I want to encourage you to seek restoration. We are completely unfit to worship the Lord if we ignore justice in our church. I want to ask you today, will you commit to seeking restoration and healing and forgiveness? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. We need the wisdom of your word to help us know how to apply, how to apply your teaching. And Father, I ask that your spirit would be active right now in our hearts. May we be a church that does justice, that loves mercy, and walks humbly in your truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.